Hey, everybody, this is Doug Birch, and you're listening to the Fairly Spiritual Show. On today's show, we're going to talk about not what Jesus would do and not what Christians should do, but what Jesus actually did. Okay, we might also talk about what Jesus would do and what you should do, but we're going to first start with what Jesus did. This is the Fairly Fairly Spiritual Show, and uh, we are broadcasting live right now on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube and on probably other platforms in other multi-universes. By the way, I saw that, uh, what was it, the Doctor Strange multiverse movie? It should have been called The Wizarding World of Doctor Strange, but anyway, uh, once you get into that multiverse, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But on today's show, I want to talk about uh, discovery. I discovered something recently that I did not know that is common for me because I'm somewhat ignorant, but it was about the Bible. And I was reading in John 10, and I came across a festival that Jesus celebrated that I didn't even know he celebrated, that I didn't even know was in the Bible. So we're going to look at the importance of this festival, and then also how understanding that Jesus celebrated this festival gives a great context to what the real trauma and trials and conflicts were about as Jesus walked this earth. So many people, in fact, okay, I'm just going to say this. The last six years, I've been incredibly disillusioned by the American Christian church, and I've seen so much bad theology. I've seen people align with wicked men. Uh, I've seen Christians talking about taking back America and making things great again and fighting to take control of institutions and seats of political power, and they often use Jesus as an excuse for these motivations. And the problem with this is that we have a very clear example from Jesus on how he handled uh, the political turmoil of his time. And the way that Jesus handled things during his time is really quite different than what we see in popular American Christianity, or at least in many places. So I'm going to get a little deep here today. I hope you stay with me. If not, you're forgiven, although I'm a little saddened that you only listened to five minutes. But I'd really love for you to listen to the whole whole shebang, the whole show, because I think this is going to help you actually understand the Gospels better, to understand also even what the Apostle Paul went through as he was fighting with those religious authorities of his time. But first to do that, let's look at the scripture that kind of opened my eyes here. We have John 10, 22 through 33. Uh, starts at 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, or excuse me, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. So the Jews gathered around him and demanded, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I already told you, Jesus replied, but you did not believe the works 
I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. But because you are not my sheep, you refuse to believe. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. At this, the Jews again picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus responded, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good works, said the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, who are a man, declare yourself to be God. The very first verse there struck me. Uh, I began to research a little bit. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, you might already know this, but I didn't know that. What's the Feast of Dedication? The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. Now, you might have a little, uh, what? Yeah, Hanukkah. Some of you are like, what? Hanukkah? In the Bible? It is. It's in the Bible. I, I'm with you. I was like, what? Jesus celebrated Hanukkah? That can't be. Hanukkahs and First and Second Maccabees. First and Second Maccabees are in the intertestimonials. And, but no, it's, it's there. Now, first, I'm just going to say this. I think it's a little anti-Semitic that this isn't made clear in our interpretations of the New Testament. Some of you have an asterisk, and if you look at the bottom, it says Hanukkah. But it should say Hanukkah. Because immediately we would know, like, oh, I know what Jesus is celebrating. Or at least we'd know in part what Jesus was celebrating. Now, I want us to look at Hanukkah during Jesus' time. Hanukkah means dedication. So the Feast of Dedication, how was it celebrated during Jesus' time? Now, there's a lot of rituals and traditions associated with Hanukkah that have developed over time. In fact, maybe 500 years later than the time we're going to talk about with Jesus. Uh, but I want to focus in on what Jesus would have been thinking about during uh, the Feast of Dedication, during Hanukkah, what those around him would have been thinking about as well, because he's at the temple celebrating this feast. And so in order to understand that, let's go back a little bit. And so now I'm going to need you to stay with me. You might need to take notes, might need to pull over uh, if you're in the car and, you know, sit there and really study uh this is not something you're going to learn passively because you're just going to start hearing dates and they're not going to mean anything to you. But let's just look at this for a second. Um, let's say 200 BC or BCE. Uh, you have two empires, competing empires that are really close to each other. You have the Ptolemaic Empire, which is in Egypt. And then you have the Seleucid Empire, which if you go up north and east, and it's a Greek territory. You know, after Alexander the Great, that split up. There were all these different Greek states, and one of them is the Seleucids. And basically, between the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic Empire, you have Israel and you have Judea, this little slice of land here. Now, at 200 BC, you have uh, Ptolemy V, or for those of you who speak Roman numerals, Ptolemy V, uh, was the ruler. And there was a battle that occurred uh, between the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic Empire, and the Seleucids pushed in and took over Judea and took over Israel. Now, in the beginning, you have Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, who ruled. And, and you have this for Israel often, where they have a larger uh, empire that's controlling them. And they have a certain amount of autonomy within the temple, within Judea, within Israel, but they're still basically ruled by a larger foreign power. Well, in this context, for the first few years of Antiochus uh, III, 
uh, or Antiochus the Great, it was somewhat benevolent in that they were allowed to do their customs and allowed to basically live without too much, uh, being bothered too much by the Seleucid Empire. But you get 23 years later, in 175 BC, someone else comes to power. It is the son of Antiochus the Great. It's Antiochus the Not-So-Great. Well, it's Antiochus the Fourth. And uh, I just, I just want to give you some history here because I think it's a little bit more complicated than we want to make it. Yes, Antiochus uh, IV is a bad dude, does a lot of bad things. But he also sees a power vacuum that is occurring within Israel. And this is what is happening. You know, within Judea, within Israel, there's the Hellenization of the surrounding communities. And Hellenization is just a term you use for Greek culture and the advancement of Greek culture. So within Israel, among the Jewish people, there were some people who were embracing this Hellenization. They were like, this is, you know, we got to be part of the modern world. Uh, our distinctives aren't as important. We have to survive. So there was that group. And there was another group that you might call the separatists. And the separatists believed we got to come out from this Hellenistic world. We have to even reestablish the concepts of circumcision, of celebrating the Sabbath, of following you know, the three main uh, uh, temple rituals where you come to the temple each year and the other festivals as well. And so there's a competition between these two groups. I'll give you just one example of how Hellenization made it really difficult for Jewish people. I don't know if you know this, and now this podcast might be a little too, uh, it might not be safe for younger kids. I think it's safe, but you might have to explain something to them. Well, in the Greek culture, uh, the gymnasium and also sports, they did in the nude. So they were naked. Now, what's the difference between the Greeks and the Jews, besides culture, well, there's the practice of circumcision. And so a nude man who's not been circumcised versus a nude man who has been circumcised, there's a problem. One is going to stick out. And so even within that culture, uh, there were Jews trying to hide the fact that they were circumcised. You could actually do procedures to hide. Should I tell you this? Like, uh, I'm just going to do it because I was researching it a bit. And my pain of researching circumcision and reverse circumcision, I need to at least be able to share that with you. Um, they they would do things like they'd pull the foreskin over the tip of the penis and tie it in a knot so it would, I know it's gross, and they'd put like, and I'm, I'm, you know what, I'm not going to explain it. But they actually would try to reverse circumcision or make it look like they weren't circumcised. Why? Well, that's a huge issue in the sense that uh, your boy your young teenager can't participate with everyone else without being clearly seen as different, being a part of the Jews who are already facing anti-Semitism in any cultural time at any time. So you have this, this struggle, this power struggle. Some people are more, let's just kind of join the larger world. Others are, let's separate from this world. So within that context, Antiochus IV makes a power move. They, the Seleucids have control over all kinds of regions, and he decides, you know what, we need to get rid of all these little distinctives and we need one big understanding of what it means to be a part of this empire. So he does some incredibly harsh, uh, terrible things. He uh, closes down the temple, basically says you can no longer do any temple practices. He outlaws circumcision. And actually, they say that he murders uh, women who allow their sons to be circumcised. Again, why just the women? Wouldn't you murder the men as well? But again, that's a misogynistic culture as well. So uh, outlaws circumcision, outlaws all the festivals, removes all the temple artifacts, basically uh, loots the temple. But not only that, he puts in pagan worship to the pagan gods, like an altar to Zeus, 
in the temple. They sacrificed pigs with pig blood, and you can see how atrocious that would be to the Jews, who, you know, pigs are unclean, not even to be able to be touched. Now you have the temple just demolished in the sense that the building's still there, but all the artifacts are removed, all the sacred rituals, uh, the sacred festivals, everything is shut down, even observances of the Sabbath, that Jews are basically called, are demanded that they are to give up all of their distinctiveness as Jewish people. So now that happens when he comes into power, not right away in 175, but it happens in 168 BC. So that's a turning point. Now, 168 BC is when all these terrible things happen to the Jews. Uh, people are murdered. You know, it's just the worst case scenario is what happens. He's basically trying to say, I'm just going to change all you people and just turn you into Seleucids and the Greeks and the Hellenized culture. And this distinctive of the Jewish religion will just fade away. So in response to that, one year later, in 167 BC, there is this forced kind of worship where they're asking a priest, an Israelite priest, to be able to sacrifice to pagan gods. And this elderly priest says, no, I am not going to sacrifice to these pagan gods. So another man, an Israelite, steps up and says, sure, you know, I want to be a part of this new empire. And he uh, tries to sacrifice to the pagan god. Well, the priest who refused to sacrifice kills the fellow Jew, and then he kills the man who came on behalf of the kingdom to enforce these new rules. So this is the beginning of a revolution. That priest, along with his five sons, they head into the mountains and basically carry on a form of guerrilla warfare uh, for the next, uh, it's like three and a half years. And this is all tied to what you might have heard of is the Maccabeans, or you could also talk about the Hasmonean family. And I don't want to get into all the details of this, but this Maccabean revolt basically is what allows the Israelites to take control again of uh, Israel, of the temple, and of temple practices. So in 164 BC, so that's about three and a half years after the temple has been you know, looted and desecrated, uh, the Maccabeans take control of the temple area and of Judea. And when they take control, they have a special day of dedication. Dedication, remember that word, Hanukkah. A special day of dedication that is written about in 1 Maccabees 4.59 and 2 Maccabees 10. And you know, if you're listening to this, you just need the extra information. So I'm going to read what it says in 2 Maccabees 10. So this is 164 BC on a specific day. They have this celebration to rededicate the temple. And I'll just read this. This is 2 Maccabees 10. Now, uh, Maccabeus and his company, the Lord guiding them, recovered the temple and the city. But the altars which the heathens had built in the open street and also the chapels, they pulled down. And having cleansed the temple, they made another altar. And striking stones, they took fire out of them and offered a sacrifice after two years and set forth incense and lights and shewbread. Go down to verse 6. And they kept the eight days with gladness, as in the Feast of Tabernacles. Because the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day celebration. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is where you celebrated that God was with us in the wilderness. And so when they weren't able to be in the temple, they probably, that was the only feast they could really celebrate, the Feast of Tabernacle, in the sense that they're in the wilderness in these huts. They're running, they're hiding, basically. So their first festival that they have when they come back, the Feast of Dedication, they make very similar to the Feast of Tabernacles. So it says, And they kept the eight days with gladness, as in the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering that not long afore 
they had held the Feast of the Tabernacles, when as they wandered in the mountains and dens like beasts. Therefore they bare branches and fair boughs and palms also, and sang psalms unto him, and had given them good success in cleansing his place. Oh, excuse me, psalms unto him that had given them good success in cleansing his place. So they sing psalms to to cleanse the temple. They ordained also by a common statute and decree that every year those days should be kept off the whole nation of the Jews, that every year those days should be kept off the whole nation of the Jews. So they pick that day as a day of celebration of when the Hasmonean Empire or the Maccabeans were able to take control back from uh, the Seleucids and to rededicate the temple and to reestablish the practices of the temple. Now, it's very interesting to see. So for that time, you know, when the Maccabeans take control from 164 BC all the way to 37 BC, there's control. The Jews have control over that area. That's the Maccabean dynasty. So 37 BC is pretty close to before, right before Jesus is born, right? You know, the way the calendar goes, you get around zero, right? It's when Jesus arrives. And so we're only talking, as Jesus is ministering, 60 years since the fall of the Maccabean Empire. And what happens with the Maccabean Empire? Well, uh, it, it begins to collapse because there's fighting among men. You know, they want power. Every empire does this. The, the children fight over the territory. The relatives fight over the territory. The second-in-command fight over. And then a civil war occurs, basically. And then the Romans sweep in. And the Romans take control. Just like you have the Seleucids sweep in. Are the Ptolemaic Empire sweeps in, that there's these larger empires that come in and sweep in and take control. So from 37 BC, tell when Jesus comes on the scene, there's this occupation of Jerusalem, of Judea, of Israel, and of the temple. And at some level, it is a benevolent occupation. I'm not saying they're always benevolent, but at least they're allowing the Jews to practice in the temple, to celebrate the rituals, that there's a level of a certain amount of peace. And think about this, when they're celebrating Hanukkah, they're thinking about, this is what happened with the Seleucids, right? They came in, and for a while, with Antiochus the Great, we were allowed to do our stuff. But then leadership changed, and then they tried to wipe us out. So that fear and that anxiety is really extremely strong among the Israelites, rightfully so. So when they celebrate the taking back of the temple, they're thinking about the same thing, that whoever's in leadership now, this could quickly turn to something where they shut the temple down, they remove all the sacred artifacts, uh, they put in pagan gods for us to worship, they begin to murder us for circumcision and for Sabbath and for these practices. So this is why I want you to understand this context. And I I think this cultural context will help you with just studying the Bible in general. So here the Israelites are waiting for another revolution to occur. They're either waiting for greater corruption to occur or for a Maccabean revolt to occur again. And there are people in positions of power. So think about there's people who control the temple. Primarily the Sadducees control the temple. Then there's people who control the synagogues, and that would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're people with religious integrity who are trying their best in order to honor God during this occupation, but they're waiting to see if a Messiah will rise up 
that will unite the people and tear down these Romans and rescue the Israelites from this oppression. But they can't align with these messianic figures until they know for sure that this Messiah is truly Messiah. And in fact, so how do they know if this is truly a leader? Well, they're celebrating Hanukkah, and this is what a leader does. Look at what the Maccabean Revolt is about. It starts with this, that the priest uh, goes after corrupted Israelites. The first person to be killed is a corrupted Israelite. So what do the religious leaders think? They think Messiah is going to go after the corrupted Israelites, those who are truly not following God's will, those who've compromised themselves and corrupted themselves. So a sign that any figure is Messiah is they're going to go harshly after, you know, strongly after uh, the people who uh, are corrupted. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus actually aligns with the corrupted in the sense of like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were hated because the Samaritans, when the Israelites were sent out into exile, uh, some Jews stayed in the area, in the Samaritan area, Samaria area, and instead of like going into exile, they intermarried with foreign wives and spouses, and, and they adopted some foreign practices, which went directly against what we see in Nehemiah and Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the Jews saw them as corrupted people. And what does Jesus do with the Samaritans? He says, this kingdom's for you. You're as much my children as uh, in the, the most uh, appropriate practicing Israelite or priest in the temple. The Samaritan woman, you know, the woman at the well is just as much a part of the kingdom. So that goes against their idea of Messiah because Messiah is going to find who are the true Israelites, and who are the fake or the phony or the compromised Israelites? Jesus expands the image. It goes beyond just Jew to Gentile. It goes, and basically he just levels the playing field. There's no one righteous, not one. There's no one righteous. So it's the opposite of what, what we think about when we think about, you know, the Maccabean starts with the purity of a pure priest, uh, first killing the corrupted Jew. And the next, what does he go after? Well, he becomes a separatist. And so the Maccabeans were defined as being separatists. They cared about the Sabbath. They cared about the religious rituals. These things were incredibly important. In fact, when they took power, it was a big deal to reinstitute circumcision, to reinstitute the following of Sabbath, that these were signs that you were true Israelites. And also, they believed that the reason things had fallen into disrepair is because people didn't honor the Sabbath, and they didn't honor these rituals, and they didn't honor the temple. So another sign that Messiah is to be Messiah is Messiah will honor the Sabbath, and Messiah will honor these religious rituals. And look what Jesus does. Jesus comes in, especially John, you see this, and he, any festival, he comes in and he basically says, you know, this light that you're celebrating here, uh, I'm the light. This light's going to go out, but I'm the light. And this water that you're celebrating and, and part of this ritual, I'm the living water. You come to me and you'll never thirst again. And even Jesus says stronger things, right? This temple, you, know, you destroy it, uh, I, I, I'm going to rebuild it. The temple is not going to dwell, it, it's not going to be buildings. My presence is going to dwell in the hearts of men and women. Jesus decentralized even the importance of Jerusalem. He does a lot of his ministry where? Right? Out with fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, like in that area. He did, Everything he does decentralized the idea of separatists. Separatists are, these rituals are very important, 
the the religious leaders are very important. He tears all of that down. Now, there was another thing they thought Messiah would do. With the Maccabean revolt, this was from a priestly line, and some people believe that the reason the Maccabeans didn't hold power or gain more power, why it corrupted, is because priests were running Jerusalem when it really should have been people from the Davidic king line, the line of David. And so they were looking not for someone from the priestly line, but someone from the line of David who might war like the Maccabeans, but would even be more powerful and stronger in gaining military power like David in order to truly protect Israel and to expand the kingdom. And we see that Jesus isn't like that as well. So I've, I've put a, a lot in here, and I'm, I'm doing it for a reason. Because we get an example of what Jesus did that helps us to deal with our present realities. There was a strong expectation that Messiah would come in and take over the positions of authority, take over the temple, uh, take over the Roman leadership structure, and build a strong army, a warring, battling group of people who will fight against the oppressors, take over the land, uh, re-establish, make Israel great again. It was very much, we need to get back to that Maccabean time when we took over our, our destiny and we became the rulers of this nation and all the marginalized groups on the secondary group, uh, you know, we got them in line and those who were truly Israel and truly sanctified and truly righteous and truly doing all the rituals, those people got, you know, preference and priority and others were called to that same kind of separatist movement. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes in and says, I'm, I welcome all of you. One, you're all sinners and you've all failed and you're all not righteous. And my grace and my goodness and my righteousness, I extend to all nations. I extend to all people. I extend to all tribes. And Jesus comes in and instead of doing what they would think you'd do to, to make it, well, it's really important how you celebrate the Sabbath, he begins to get at the heart of people. And he heals on the Sabbath and does work on the Sabbath, and he confronts their, their understanding of the Sabbath, and he confronts their understanding of all the rituals and the regulations. And he comes to say this, I've not come to try to take back the temple in physical form. Like, we're just going to, you know, put a wall around the temple and, and or around Jerusalem and protect Jerusalem and have this be a power base. He's like, no, I'm not taking over the city. I'm taking over the hearts of the men and women in this city that the kingdom of God is going to be about the hearts and it's going to expand beyond Jerusalem to the uttermost reaches of existence. That this isn't about fortifying power for one nation, but about blessing all nations. It's about the promise that was given to Abraham, that Abraham would be a people that would bless the rest of the people on the face of the earth. It's about that promise taking root through Messiah coming, not through the powerful positions, through through the battles, through the warring, through all these ways that men try to gain power, but through a different kingdom where the kingdom would come and those who hear the Father's voice will follow the Father's voice, regardless if the temple falls, regardless if Jerusalem falls, regardless of if it's the Hasmoneans in power or the Solutions in power or the Republicans in power or the Democrats in power, a kingdom that will prevail. As Christians, we must see what Jesus did. Jesus did not do nation building. He advanced the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is to advance to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It wasn't about preserving one nation over another nation. It was about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we see in the scripture that I read in the beginning here, as he says so clearly, they're saying, it's, well, I'm going to read this to you again, because now you see the context here, just the beginning of this. 
uh, uh, let me go to here, John 10. At the beginning, it says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, at the time Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. So they're waiting. This is the dedication, Hanukkah. They're waiting for him to start the revolt. This is what the people say. So the Jews gathered around him and demanded, how long will you keep us in suspense? Why are they saying that during Hanukkah? Because they're tying Messiah to, you're going to be like the Maccabeans, and you're not doing anything like them. You're not killing the infidels. You're not killing the enemies. You're not gathering armies. You're not trying to control the structures. You're not trying to get the Sadducees on your side and the Pharisees on your side and the leaders of the temple on your side. You're doing nothing political. Or the political things you're doing go beyond the politics of Israel to the politics of the whole world. Said, so the Jews gathered around him and demanded, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I already told you. And that's what Jesus says to us. He's already told us what he would do. He's already done it. Jesus did not come to do nation building. He did not come to make America great again. He did not come to make Canada great again or Mexico great again. Jesus has come so that the Father can abide in each and every one of us, regardless of male or female, young or old, Jew or Gentile, Canadian, American, Mexican, Ghanan, Australian, Ethiopian. So all that foolishness that we see people trying to do what they wanted Jesus to do when he walked this earth, to start another Maccabean revolt. To take over, well, we'll just take over the, the positions of power, and if we just get the right laws and the right people in positions of power, we can, we can consolidate our power and control this thing and make this a great place. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I've already told you that I'm Messiah, and he's told you that he's Messiah by listening to the Father and doing what the Father has told him to do. And he says, clearly, those who know the Father will hear my voice and follow me. Uh, friends, Jesus is speaking to you. The Father is speaking to you. You have a good shepherd, and he is leading you. And I would encourage you to listen to him. Listen to him. He's going to lead you regardless of what comes next. Should we have political opinions, you bet. Should we vote in a proper way that advances the good news of God? If it at all possible, yes. But let's be clear about this. The kingdom of God is not going to advance through us aligning ourselves with wicked men in order to change laws and principles and regulations and borders and boundaries. That's not how the kingdom of God advances. Jesus showed us how it advanced. He didn't do that. He's not doing that now either. The Father is speaking. Through the Holy Spirit, we can hear the Father's voice. And there's work to be done to advance the good news of Jesus Christ to bring the life and light of Jesus into dark places, to reach the Samaritans as much as we reach those who work in the temple, to re reach the rich and the poor, to reach those who know so much and those who know so little. We need to know what Jesus did. There's so much to study in this, but I, I just want to encourage you, just encourage you, uh, challenge you, if you are aligning yourself in some sort of Maccabean kind of revolt uh, and saying that that's what Jesus wants you to do, could I just tell you that's not Christ?
That's not what Christ has done. Christ ushered in the last days where the kingdom of God would expand far beyond the borders of Israel into the hearts and minds of every single person that God has created. That's the kingdom we should be working for. Hey, thanks for listening. I appreciate you listening to this. Feel free to share it with people. Uh, if at all you got something out of it, uh, certainly you can find this on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and you can also find it at fairlyspiritual.org or the podcast, The Fairly Spiritual Show that you can get on iTunes. I guess I'm supposed to say like and subscribe and all that stuff, but I don't have time to figure all that out. In some other multi-universe, there's a Doug that does all that. But in this universe, I just get by. Okay, love you guys. Jesus knows you by name. Make room for him. I'll talk to you later.